welcome to Weird Studies, an art and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes and to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. So hey, um, what are we doing here? What's uh, what what's the conceit of this show? I'm I'm kind of like cobbled some premise together. It was uh, we can look back a little bit on the first. How many episodes are we at now? Eighteen. I think it's like eighteen plus two weird stories. Right. So either eighteen or twenty, depending on how you're counting. Well, tw- we've put out twenty files. That seems like a good time to like pause and look back. And something so intimate about. Podcasts like you develop like the podcasts I love. I feel very close to the hosts. And yeah, me um, too. Yeah, and I'm I'm assuming some people might feel similarly, and so it's good. I I just you suggested that we do this, and I think it's a great idea because it gives us a chance to like just talk out of our ass a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> I don't yeah, know like we don't do that. <laughs> like we don't do that every other week. And uh, yeah, but without even pretending. To, to know yeah. what we're talking about. Yeah, we can drop we can drop the pretense that we right. know what the fuck we're talking about. Exactly. We can just talk about stupid shit. And also to check in and see, like, and kind of invite people to give us some feedback. Not that we're not haven't been getting feedback. We've been, and I think that's one thing we want to talk about today. I've been finding it really hard to incorporate some of the ma- the amazing stuff I read from listeners into the shows because because. Um, I get a bit of tunnel vision once we get down, once we, you know, get into an oh, episode. When we're actually, yeah, recording, because we do have all kinds of stuff that we've lined up that we want to talk about. Right. Um, so this could be an opportunity to bring some of those up as well. Um, yeah. So, you know, we'll just see how it goes, I guess. Well, the first thing I want to do, actually, is is to make an announcement, which has to do with the schedule of the show. So when we started, first month, I think we were doing, or first month and a half, we were doing it on a bi-weekly schedule, releasing an episode once every two weeks, and then decided to go to every week, and that's been great. Uh, it's summertime, and the living is easy. Um, somehow I assume that people are maybe, I don't know, maybe you got better things to do and listen to podcasts. Maybe you're lounging on a beach and drinking drinking drinks with a little parasol sticking out of them. That's In any a, event. That's uh, no excuse are, not, to wa- not to listen to a podcast. No, I know. You could do both. Yeah. You could be sitting there listening to a show about Dogen while drinking a Mai Tai. Right. Why not? Uh, greatly realizing delusion. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so anyway, what we're thinking of doing... Uh, shit, why did I say that? We're thinking of doing... What we are going to do is to go back to a biweekly schedule. But then in the fall, come the fall, we're going back to uh, once a week. So so don't So don't worry. If you're if you're uh, if you're a down from day one weird studies hardcore, um, we are going back on the full uh, schedule in this fall semester. Actually, it's funny it, following kind of the rhythm of the academic year. Summertime is intercession. Uh, you're not doing as much, and then you've got a fall term and a winter term. Maybe we can take some time off and around uh, the winter holidays, the winter solstice. Um, but anyway, so yeah, that's a kind of basic shape of what things are going to look like in the coming year. So 
This episode is coming out tomorrow, which is June something or other. What is it? Not tomorrow, day after tomorrow. On June 20th. Yeah. Um, and then there will be nothing. And then the week after that, we're going to do the first part of our Trash Stratum show. Is that right? That's right. We're gonna are we doing? We're gonna do trash stratum in two weeks. So we recorded a show a while ago. Actually, a really long conversation. So it's split up into two parts, um, based on Philip K. Dick's insight that the symbols of the divine first appear at the trash stratum. And I think we've mentioned that actually a few times in the show. Uh, so we devote a couple of shows to that. Uh, we've got a couple of interviews that we're doing coming up. Who who we got? Who who's gonna be on the show? Um. We're doing Joshua Ramey. Um, oh, we and we were supposed to record with him last weekend, but we both you and I were totally fucking sick, so we couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Yeah. And uh, so we're trying to. We're going to reschedule something with Joshua. Joshua Ramey is the author of uh, w- well, at least one book that I absolutely love, um, The Hermetic de Deux. Um, mm-hmm. Also, he's a uh, He's a he's just a fantastic philosopher. He wrote recently published a book called The Politics of Divination, which you have read, Phil. I haven't read it yet. I have. Yeah. And um he's just a really interesting um thinker who isn't afraid to draw on religion and traditions of magic to inform his um very rigorous uh philosophy philosophical work mm-hmm. so he's uh he's a great i can't wait to talk to him and then we're also going to meet with and talk with uh michael garfield he's the host of the future fossils podcast which is just fantastic he gets all kinds of cool guests on there and um he's he's a super smart dude he he recently re- wrote a piece the title of which i've of course forgotten uh but so smart such an interesting daring imaginative piece uh, you sent me a link to it. You're like, oh, yeah, you should check this out. It's like, whoa. Yeah, yeah. He's the real a shit. Fresh ori- a fresh original voice in the uh, in the weirdosphere. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, yeah, the piece, uh, Michael's piece was The Future Acts Like You. And, mm. um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's just, it's really good. He's, in this uh, essay, he's synthesizing a bunch of different themes, ideas he's been interested in, and really brings them together. Um in an interesting way. Uh, so Michael Garfield, I think his training is in evolutionary science, biology. Mm. And so he brings a very interesting perspective to these discussions, discussions about consciousness and, and culture and art. Um, he's, a, he's a fascinating guy. And we're also really excited about this. We're still trying to figure out how to do this, but we are probably going to have an interview with Lionel Snell, also known as, better known as Ramsey Dukes, chaos magician, somebody who has written what, for my money, is the single best book, uh, theoretical book on magic. It's one of the best ever, called Sasotbeme, S-S-O-T-B-M-E, which stands for Sex Secrets of the Black Magicians Exposed, which is uh, typical of his uh, tongue-in-cheek sense of humor, because actually there's absolutely nothing about that in the book. But, of course, that's what everybody wants when they pick up a book on the occult. They want to read about the sex secrets of the black magicians. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, so we are going to be talking not about Sasatme, uh, but uh, an essay he wrote called The Charlatan and the Magus, which is one of my favorite magical essays, which makes a really neat point that the 
sleaze and dishonesty and like the just the general aroma of bullshit that hangs around occult scenes everywhere is not a bug it's a feature so anyway that's a teaser for show we're going to be doing in the future so and we're going to continue obviously doing uh the shows where it's just jf and me um in fact that's i think it's going to be the rule rather than the exception we want to have interviews uh but we don't want to turn this into an interview show i don't think no i do that for a living already yeah yeah so so we got to talk to just like our favorite people right um so if we haven't asked you to be on the show it's because we think you suck (laughs) I'd love to have an interview show as well. Actually, I mean, actually, we would uh, we could totally do an interview show and never even come close to running out of interesting people, like worthwhile people to talk to. Yeah, uh, because it's it crazy when I, I was naive when I first started putting together where we started putting together this podcast. I had this idea that's like, well, the weirdest fear probably isn't that big. Uh you know, not that many people. It's like a small town, a little village. You get to know everybody in a single afternoon. Nope. Uh, there's a lot of really interesting people coming at the weird from a lot of different, I don't know, just a lot of different directions. You're absolutely right. Just in the, you know, there's so many people we could have on. A lot of them probably wouldn't appreciate being called weirdos, but <laughs> we think they're weird enough to get be on the show. So um, <laughs> We're the, saying it like it's a good thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it's, that's been a hard, yeah, it's cause on, on one hand I want more and more guests, like I want to talk to this or that person and, and what better opportunity, but at the same time, um, the whole point of this podcast was to, um, extend or, or just to, to transmute, uh, a correspondence that already existed between you and me, Phil, and to, 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 to make it public, to kind of put it out there. If if only as a way to like force us to to move on it to like to 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 to, to accelerate certain processes that were at work within it. And, yeah, or like um, read a yeah. damn like yeah, like read a damn book every now and then. Right. Martel. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't been reading much lately, but I've been rereading, which is important. Actually, this is it's not something that we've talked about. That this show does actually keep us honest. That we're both. It's not just volume of reading. I mean, I'm. I don't know about you, bro, but I'm I'm just I'm I, I get word poisoning. By the end of a day at work, I've my eyes have run over so many lines of print, um, much of it execrable, uh, that I'm just like you know, it's actually takes a little bit of effort to you have to fight for your right to party. Um, the part of intellectual life that isn't strictly entailed by, you know, an academic profession. Um you, you need to keep that going. You have to keep that little pilot light lit. And this show has been really good for that. Like I've always got something to think about, something I'm reading um, that isn't, you know, just professional, musicological, whatever. Right. Uh, so it's been really actually for me really productive to do this show. It, it's primed the pump. I found it to be it's just something I like talking through these ideas every week. And we're always talking about different stuff, and yet we're also always running variations on themes that we've already introduced. Uh, that, to me, is a real, I don't know, it's a stimulus to fresh ideas, you know, fresh thoughts. Yeah. No, I, I, it, for me, it's been super, super profitable um, in the sense that I've, uh, I've been able to 
to kind of like better understand certain ideas I had <laughs> or to, yeah. to be able to see them, see them take shape in a very distinct way. And yeah. now I have several writing projects that are going really well. And, and, uh, and, uh, yeah, I think we, I think we, yeah, the that. conversation. I mean, the thing is for me, and this is why ultimately this is always going to be kind of a JF and Phil joint, uh, with guests, uh, every now and then, but like mostly you and me, is that you and I each have ideas and there's a large Venn circle overlap between those ideas, ideas where we agree or where we had similar ideas or whatever. Um, but it's not just a purely additive process. Like Phil's ideas plus JF's ideas equals weird studies. It's like the ideas take the same, they're identical in form to the conversations by which they come into being. Does that make any sense? Like, this is a thought, this is an idea that I had actually right when you and I first started being friends, we were corresponding in late 2015, and this is when I was on sabbatical. And I had had for a long time, you gotta realize my dad was a philosophy professor, and so it's not like I'd never encountered philosophy before, but I'd sort of avoided doing a lot of reading in philosophy, or a lot of think, what I, think of as philosophy um or resisted the idea that what i was doing was philosophical in nature partly because i always felt like well philosophy is such a technical discipline uh there's so much stuff that you need to know to advance even the most um modest and small bore of philosophical ideas i mean if you have a philosophical idea in professional philosophy it has to be an original idea. It has to be an idea no one's had before. Well, everybody has had every idea before. I mean, what you're left doing is if you get an idea, then you have to sort of trace your way through the philosophical literature and find everybody who has ever said anything remotely similar to your idea. And of course, inevitably, you find people who have had your idea before. And so in the professional scene, what you do is you just continually whittle away at your original insight until it resembles a kind of a footnote, an added gloss on some existing idea, almost like a little chink in the wall, and you're just stuffing a little bit of, a little bit of mortar. And I guess my feeling was just like the amount of philosophical reading you have to do to be able to make an original contribution and then the original contribution you stand to make being so modest and so chained by convention and precedent, uh, it just didn't seem worth it. And I always had this idea, it was like there aren't any new ideas. There's just this endless reshuffling of the old ones into configurations that look new, which is a somewhat cynical way to think. And then it occurred to me during our conversations, and I think it was our conversations uh, which modeled this for me, but it also came from our conversation about Graham Harmon in his essay, The Third Table, which ends with Harmon calling for philosophy conducted in the spirit of poetry or in the spirit of art. Uh, it became clear to me as you and I started talking that like ideas can't be original. I mean, they really can't, but people, are always original. Like every human being, I am, I have really come around to souls. Like the idea of the soul, not necessarily, you know, the Judeo-Christian idea of the soul. I think there's lots of different ideas of the soul. There's a wonderful book by Patrick Harper called The Secret Tradition of the Soul. 
which uh, I recommend to anybody interested in this question. But I do have a sense that out of all of those odds and ends and bits and pieces and snips and snails and puppy dogs tails that we heap up in a pile and then we paint a crude face on it and call it me, like that's my identity, I have really come around to the idea that however much that may be true, there is something emergent from that pile of stuff that is not identical with the pile. It, it, it includes all of those things in the pile, but somehow there is some kind of individuality that goes beyond them. And this, and you can call that soul or whatever you want, but like that to me is always a profoundly original event. A human being is an original event. You know, and it doesn't matter how suffocated in convention each person can be. It doesn't matter if you try to make yourself as rigidly conventional and as much like everybody else. I don't care. Even the simplest person is a vastly more complex um, than any idea that any philosopher is ever going to have. And it occurred to me that, like, the idea is never the original thing. It is the utterance of the idea by an individual out of a particular place, a particular situation at a particular time that is always original. And conversations likewise embody that principle, but even more so, there's this bouncing little ball of energy, like ball lightning, you know, this, 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 uh, I was going to say like a vector of energy, but then I imagine a straight line, whereas what happens in a conversation is anything but straight. You have this little ball of energy, like the little ball bouncing on top of the words in a sing-along with Mitch kind of situation. Uh, that's a dated reference, but anyway, <laughs> maybe you know what I'm talking about. I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay. <laughs> Google, bro. Uh, so there's this little ball of energy that bounces around unpredictably and zigs and zags between the two of us as we uh, warm to our customary themes, you know, and as we do, we end up with a conversation that bears forth ideas that neither you nor I ever have on our own. The idea is entirely original and is coming out of, and I mean, when I say it's entirely original, everything we're saying has some family resemblance to something someone else has said sometime. But but the performance of it is unique. Right. You know, this is what I like about podcasts is you get to hear in a good conversation. Like, you'll hear, you can extract an idea from it. You can paraphrase an idea that comes out of conversation and say, oh yeah, and that reminds me of something that like, I don't know, St. Thomas Aquinas said. But but the conversation itself is like a thumbprint, you know? It's like a person's voice. It's, a, it's, it's unique to them, and it bears forth a trace of their subjectivity. The idea and the subjectivity get all mixed together somehow. And I don't know. I'm going off at great and boring length about this, and I should probably put a sock in it. But suffice it to say, I'm really fascinated by the affordances of the podcast. I'm really interested in how it allows certain kinds of thinking to happen. And getting back to what we're talking about, like, what are we getting out of doing a podcast? Like, I don't know. I get that out of it. Yeah, well, that's something. What I like is that I've noticed that the more prepared I am, the worse I do. <laughs> yeah, I know that. There's something about just the, 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 the way that we our conversation is gone that it, it, it forces me to um, to walk to the edge of what I've been thinking about and to like push a little further 
Yeah, that's right. I really appreciate that because, um, uh, because that's where the weird is, you know? And yeah, that's right. You know, it's not the places that you already know. Right. It's the places that you don't. Right. And, um, and I like being in that space and our conversation has really kind of fueled that. And I feel like it's been kind of my, one of the roles that I've been handed in this is to really, really push, um, one side of you know maybe not the weirder side but the uh like for example in the last episode where oh, I, I think it's fair to say that i th- i think it's fair to say that you are always pressing into the weirder territory i think that's your job yeah maybe or at least yeah to entertain that that to, to, I, I just i'm like the ambassador of the thick end of the wedge and you're the ambassador <laughs> of the thin end of the wedge, and we're having. Have we a... ever explain? Have we ever explained what that means? Thick end of the wedge, thin end of the wedge, because that's a metaphor that popped into our correspondence at some point, and it certainly explains our typical, I don't know, our propensities. I see it all the time in our conversations. We did explain it briefly in the intro episode, I believe, but basically, it's very simple. It's that um, Phil has a natural tendency to think in terms of uh, of experience first and foremost. So what's and correct me if I'm wrong here and, and no, I'm no, not, you're right. yeah and and the, the, when you approach an idea, it's always in terms of how that idea fits into experience, how it fits into the experience of a subject, of a person in the world. Uh, what you mention affordances a lot. What does that idea give me? What does it make possible for me? Um, and my tendency is more to think in terms not of experience, but of existence. And what I mean by that is that I'm much more inclined to wonder about what is actually the case outside of all experience. So, for example, although an idea can be really useful, if it's not actually reflecting a reality that is the case with or without me, I I. I hesitate to me. It can't, you know, it's, it's like, I'm just a little less pragmatically minded. Maybe it's because I'm French. The French language is very much very, uh, the word we use in French is Cartesian. Cartesian. It's very about, it's very much about setting out maps of objective territories. And, um, and, and because of that, I, I tend to go towards what is actually going on. So for example, when we talked about the paranormal, well, you might take an, an attitude like, uh, well, who cares? If it, was it a demon? Was it a ghost? Like, who cares? As long as I'm honoring the experience and moving. And, and, and we'll, yeah. we'll never know what it is. It doesn't matter. What matters is what symbol system I use to represent my experience so that I can move through the world and, 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 conti- and live a good life, right? And live an interesting right. life. Or, um, whereas for me, I'm always like, yeah, but what was it? Was it a demon or was it a ghost? Like, what is it? Like, <laughs> can we get to that? Can we, f- can we think the unthinkable or what seems unthinkable to us? But having said all that, neither one of us is like married to that end of the wedge. Like we're not like, no. we, we meet halfway and we both embrace the other view. Um, and, uh, and that's what makes the conversation so interesting to me. But I constantly see this tug between us, between these two, these two modes, these two ways of seeing, like it's constantly coming up again in the end. I mean, it's yeah. just sort of like the, we have a native disposition that is, uh, you know, 
Mine is phenomenological, and yours more. Is, I think of as being more ontological. Maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. No, that's absolutely true. Um, that's, I should have just said that because that explains everything. Although those terms are, are technical terms, not everybody understands, but that's totally true. Uh, I was just going to say that I, I think I've detected in your discourse over time a certain resistance to ontology, or to yep. yeah, um, and I I don't like phenomenology. Um, <laughs> I really like I like a lot of phenomenologists. Um, I, f- I just find that phenomenology doesn't dare to think big enough. It doesn't, it, it limits itself. It brackets. So it says, well, whatever. We'll never know what the world re- really is. So let's just content ourselves with bracketing parts of the world and yeah, talking exactly. about experience, which is fine. I mean, it's essential, but I think we can do both. It just seems to me to be actually a very modern, uh, modernist, like post Kantian project. We say basically, like, well, I've basically given up on the world. Like, the world is forever cut off from me. So the consolation prize is I'm just going to describe my passage through the world. Yeah. I, I, in a way, like, I agree with it. I don't think we'll ever know the world in itself. Um, where I object with the classical phenomenological position is that I think we can know that we will never know the world in itself. So to turn that neg- negative... Um, oh, this position. is your whole Miesu thing. Right. The only thing that you can dogmatically say is that there is no dogmatic yeah. the only position th- yeah, anywhere. It, to me, that it's something that I intuited all along. And when I read Miesu, and I'm not taking, I'm not saying I had this idea. I just had this intuition. And when I read his book after Finitude, I just saw, I saw what it was I'd been intuiting almost a lot of time. I'm sure that's, that's a lot of great philosophy. That's what it does. It, it gives words and concepts to intuitions. And um, his great, what I would call it a discovery, is that the only thing, his argument is that the only thing that, that we know, he says anything can exist. Anything can exist, including fucking Zeus or Poseidon or centaurs. <laughs> anything can exist except a necessary being. And, uh, you know, so... Philosophy has traditionally been concerned with finding out what being is necessary. What's the first cause? What's the original stratum on which everything yeah, rests? Like, what's like the... if there's a God, where did he come from? Right. And you always have to go to a self-generating cause, something that is just necessary. Therefore, it doesn't need a cause in itself. So it can be all kinds of, of candidates have come up through the history of philosophy from uh, just uh, pure intellect and Plato to like God and Christian theology to um, in Nietzsche, the will to power, you know, and, and what, what Mayasu is saying is that all those things we know are false. All we can know is that the only thing that's necessary is absolute contingency. So non-necessity. <laughs> that means that the world can do anything it wants except generate a necessary being. So it's kind of a, an abstract thing, but when, when it sinks in, it's really uh, something. And it would seem to be the most atheistic, nihilistic stance you could take, but I don't see it that way at all. Um, and I think that that argument I love, but other things he does in that book, and we'll talk about that on another show, maybe with Joshua Ramey, I don't agree with. Um, but, but I find that in, 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 in presenting that argument about absolute contingency, he's let the cat out of the bag and he's been trying to put it back into the bag ever since because what his goal is to validate mathematics as the absolute uh, ground of all real ontology. 
but he's mm-hmm. basically trying to save science from philosophy. Not that it's really endangered or anything, but um, and uh, but I think he's also uh, inadvertently allowed for all kinds of wondrous. Uh, it's funny because he wouldn't agree, but he I don't know. There's a lot. We want to talk about affordances. I find his philosophy presents some interesting new affordances. Let me ask you a question. Um, like, put it this way. You know how uh, there's something called process theology? Yeah, which absolutely. Which rest, rests upon the work of Whitehead, Alfred North Whitehead. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of an interesting thing, that the work of the prag- uh, pragmatists, uh, like, well, especially Whitehead, but to some extent James, uh, can, become, can be woven into a theological discourse. Do you think the same can be said of Miesu? And I'm asking that partly because Miesu's whole worldview seems to be so profoundly um, secular. Like, I can't imagine, based on the on the impression I get of Miesu from reading After Finitude, I can't imagine that he would be very happy to see his ideas. Uh, folded into anything resembling theology, but at the same time, I can't help but feel that his ideas ultimately are kind of theological. Oh, I agree. And and, and in fact, his doctoral thesis is called the divine the divine in existence. And uh, his his argument he 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 is an extremely religious philosopher. In fact, he's a Christian philosopher, even though he rejects Christianity. So. Um, in the divine in existence, in his thesis, his his he says basically the the following arguments have been presented when it comes to the existence of God or when it comes to faith in God. He says, um, you can say, I believe in God because He exists. You can say, I don't believe in God because He doesn't exist. And we can find many examples of people who would espouse one or the other of those two positions and then he has a third one he says you can say i don't believe in god because he exists and what he means by that is the kind of uh you know the positions that hate god the gnostics they say well there is a god but i don't believe in it i don't there is a god but fuck that guy yeah right and then he says there's one position that hasn't been explored hasn't been explored yet and that is i believe in god because he doesn't exist and that's the position he adopts he basically argues that although we can know that there is no God, we also know that it is eminently possible at any moment that some being will arise and make right the wrongs of the world. And he says that we need to believe in this actively. Um, and the way that he, he then he starts to describe how this God would present, would, would, would manifest itself according to his own speculative philosophy, how this God would come about. And he, he basically <laughs> retells the story of Christ to you. The God will arise as a man. He will be a nobody at first. And then this and that and the other thing. And he, he basically, and somebody reviewed um, his, his other book on this and said, you know, Miyasu sets about like, basically he just uh, writes a philosophy book and rediscovers Christianity you know, and, and it reminded <laughs> yeah. me of this G.K. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, um, this passage from uh, G.K. Chesterton's book, uh, Orthodoxy, where he says, you know, he, he imagines someone going off, leaving England to sail and discover a new continent and then discovering something, planting his flag and then realizing that he's in, you know, he's in Dover 
He's in England yeah. still. And, uh, and, and that's, that, that was G.K. Chesterton's journey back into orthodoxy, into Christianity. And I think Maestro's doing something similar. It's very weird. I don't know what his personal uh, beliefs just, are. But. Your description of like uh, belief in God because God does not exist sounds a bit like, uh, I think it's Tertullian, who said, I believe because it is impossible. Right. He's been, I looked into that because I, I have an interest in Tertullian right now. I'm reading a lot of his, his work online. Um, and he, he never quite said that, but he did, it, it does come to something like that. Basically, what I, what I love about Tertullian is he's, he, he believed in brute causation. He didn't think that any of the logical kind of metaphysical laws the Greeks had come up with, which Christians were trying to use to justify orthodox belief, uh, were required. He just thought that the Greeks should get out of religion. Religion's about absolutely brutal events. Brutal not in the uh, in the violent sense. Like but cruel or whatever. No, and brutal in the sense that it doesn't need to be explained. So things just happen. For example... Shit happens. Yeah. yeah. Like you were talking about, about soul. Well, Tertullian believed that every soul was an absolutely new creation. And... Um, and God creates each person absolutely new. And there's no causal process at work in that. It's just an absolutely original um, event that, that can't be reduced to any, any previous causes. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, and he believed that, that the incarnation was this, this, this miracle. He, he, was a, he believed in miracles. And miracles are precisely... Events that don't reduce the causes, right? So he yeah. made that front and center in his theology. He's got a bit of a bad rap because he didn't he didn't have he didn't tolerate uh, Gnostics and all kinds of people who are considered very cool and cutting edge today. Um, <laughs> but he was very very uh, traditionalist and uh, almost authoritarian. Um, but there are some interesting um, ideas in there that I that I really like. But he did say, like he's basically his philosophy has been, sum, has been summed up in this creo uh, quae absurdum est or whatever. Like I believe in it. I believe it because it is absurd. Mm-hmm. Um, but he didn't actually say that. He didn't actually say that exactly. And I don't remember all the subtle nuances that I read about that. But he, it's it's sort of like Sherlock Holmes Elementary, my dear Watson. Right, which he never said. Um, so, so, so that in other words, uh, the sentiment is not alien to Tertullian. To Tertullian, um, it's just that he doesn't actually say it in so many words. Exactly. I don't know what I think about that. I believe because it's impossible. I guess I have a problem with belief, but, but it's but at the same time, I'm not so stupid as to think you can go through life without without beliefs. So, well, there's a danger in that, and that's something Mayasu talks about all the time. Uh, uh, how do you say this in English? Fideisme. Fideism. 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 I don't know how you... I, actually, I don't know how you say that. Uh, it doesn't come up very often in conversation. The uh, position is basically that, well, we can't know what is real, so anything goes. So I'll believe the most, the craziest thing, because it could as, might as well be true. And that's one thing that Mayasu's arguing fiercely against in his, in his work. He's like, no, that's not it. The minute you say, well, we don't know what is actually the case, you're claiming to know that one cannot know what is actually the case. So there is a positive content in that, and you have to embrace that. So the, the, the meaning of the word belief changes once you've realized that your belief is founded upon an, 
a knowing and not ignorance. So there's the type of fetism that Meyasu really despises, and he he basically says Wittgenstein and and Heidegger enabled this, basically just just licensed this in the worst way. And he actually claims Meyasu claims that a lot of the the pernicious uh, theological currents at work today, whether on the you know in the, in the Islamic world or the Christian world or whatever, are because of this of philosophy's failure to talk about the world in itself. It basically just left, it just just put a a, a barrier, and and then people are just free to believe whatever they want as to what is actually the case. So then the the craziest like like L. Ron Hubbard's theories might as well be true, or anything could be true. Yes, he says that's not that's not good. Uh, we need to turn the negative into a positive. We need to ner- turn our negative, our, 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 our admission that we can't know everything into a positive statement about what we know. And that's absolute contingency. But the point is that he definitely um, uh, believes that anything's possible and that we can know that. So it's not the same thing. So, it's, so in, in, a, in a phrase like, I believe it because it is absurd. The word believe means different things if you're believing out of ignorance or believing out of knowledge. And so, right? So anyway, I will. I will say though, at the end of the day, I just have never been able to summon up that last degree of sympathy that would be necessary for me to really enjoy uh, and perhaps understand Miyasu's ideas here. Because, uh, and I think maybe it has to do with my, you know, sort of I don't know suspicion of ontology. Uh, to take it back to an earlier stage in this conversation. Um, because if the problem, as Miesu sees it, is with fetism, uh, is that it, it erodes any robust idea of what is true. And Miesu wants to come up with a very robust, a super robust idea of what is true. And that is his idea that, um, as you say, there is no, though the one thing we can know is that there is no necessary being. Um, this is going to sound unbelievably cynical, but I just don't care that much about that philosophical question. I'm just not. I just don't care. Uh, I am much more interested in the in the way the world presents itself to us. Of course, I love engaging in speculation as to why things appear the way they do. And I do have my... I have my little theories, I have my little ideas. And we've, uh, and you and I, I think, have, have, have converged on a, a good deal of sort of shared metaphysics. I mean, one idea that we've been playing with in this show repeatedly, which I think is a really, it's not an original, again, there are no new ideas. It's not an original idea, but I think it's a really neat idea, and I've enjoyed developing it with you. Um, the idea of an aesthetic universe, that the fundamental nature of the universe is not matter, um, it's not, I, it's not uh, idea, uh, it's 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 aesthetics. It's yeah. um, uh, feeling and and the idea that the universe is a co-creation that is something that we are writing the universe into being, which is a somewhat idealistic way to think of it. At the precise same moment that the universe is writing us into being, the figure I always have in my head is that M. C. Escher drawing of two hands. Each one, each hand is drawing the other. Um, that to me is a convincing sort of picture of the universe, and I love it. 
But the reason I love it is not because I'm going to hold that it's like, ah, this is capital T truth. Uh, I just don't, I mean, uh, I don't know, maybe it is, but I don't care to make that argument because I think that there's no fucking way that anybody is going to be able to make an argument for that idea or any other idea that is really going to ever carry conviction as capital T truth. It will always be at best just another possible truth. May uh, may bear on the truth, but I really am kind of a mystagogue. I really do feel like there maybe will come some point where uh, the masks come off and we finally realize what it's all about. But I just don't think it's given to us to know that. Well, I totally um, agree with you about that it's... in the here and now, uh, and 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 so then you know with an idea like the idea of a co-created universe and a universe that is fundamentally aesthetic. Um, the universe is a big story, you know, and we're storytellers and we are also figures in a story. Um, you know, I like it because it sure exp it sure would explain a lot, especially if you read a lot of, into Fortiana, if you know a lot about, like, you know, literature on the paranormal. Um, sure would explain a lot. Uh, it's an elegant theory, but moreover, for me, it's a beautiful theory. Um, it's a theory that, as, as you say, uh, this is the way I think. It has affordances. I can do things with it. Um, to paraphrase David Lynch, I can get in there and dream. You know, it's a good place to dream. Um, but can I prove that it's true? No. And neither would I want to. Uh, it just It's just not interesting to me. It's just, uh, what, if actually it's sort of almost like put your money where your mouth is. If I view the universe as fundamentally an aesthetic, it's, its nature is fundamentally aesthetic. Um, then what matters most about a theory is not its truth, but its beauty, to me. Um, I realize how completely cynical this sounds, and I'm sure somebody could say, well, that's just like Donald Trump or something, because these days everything that we don't like, we say, that's just like Donald Trump. Um, and maybe that's true, because he's like the most uniquely horrible person on the face of the how planet. How is it like Donald Trump, though? Why would you I don't know. I'm just blowing it no, out I think I think you're um, right to point that out. I think it is like Donald Trump in a sense, because... <laughs> Because uh, that's the whole thing behind the fake news thing and all that, right? Is that there is no truth, therefore. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think that truth... <clears throat> I don't know. There's little T truth and big T truth. Right. Uh, you know, it is true that right now I'm talking into a microphone and um, having a conversation with you across, I don't know, like a thousand kilometers or something. I mean, there's a lot of things that are true. I, I think it is possible to get at the truth of any number of things that bear on policy. And you can make intelligent and enlightened, rational decisions about policy um, uh, based on those little t truths. And I can certainly agree that that is most emphatically not what the Trump White House is doing. But we're talking about different kind of truth, you know, capital T truth, metaphysical truths. And, I, I, uh, may, and I'm sure there's all kinds of problems with drawing some distinct, the, the rough and ready distinction between capital T and small t truth that I am making here. But for me, these, there is a domain past which it's just sort of like um, where the maps all say hex sunt dracones and they always will. Well, that, that's exactly Mayasu's argument. Yeah, except he fucking sells out. That's the thing. He's like, 
but in order for him to make it, he says, but there's this one thing that you have to hold to be capital T truth, which is that there are no truth, which, but I mean, just, <laughs> it doesn't solve the problem. It just, it just sets us back to the, the starting line again. You no, know, no, when he's here, here's another thinker making another totally unverifiable and unfalsifiable statement about the ultimate order of things, which will take its place next to other similar ideas uh, about which people will ratchet on about till the end of time, till the fucking sun explodes. I just, I, I guess it's this feeling, you know, it's not even a philosophical position for me. It's just a feeling of weariness. Like, I just don't feel like um, playing you know, a game I can't win. Right. No, I, I, Ontology I can, I, I feels that. like a game that you can't win. Um, yeah, unless you look at it aesthetically. Which is what I yeah, tend to true, do. which is what we're doing. Yeah. yeah. So so I agree with you. Um, absolutely. In fact, that's what I like about Miyasu is that he's saying that no metaphysical uh, position will ever be correct. Period. <laughs> that's all it means. Except the metaphysical position that no metaphysical position will ever be correct. Well, I mean, yeah, you could you could spin it that way, but it's not a metaphysical position. Because you, you just made the How is it yourself. not a metaphysical position? Wasn't well, that what you just argued? That metaphysical Wait, what? Aren't you arguing the metaphysical positions will all be will always be replaceable, exchangeable? That they're they're just at some point there's no capital T truth. Yeah, except I'm not really saying that as a matter of like I'm not going to dogmatize it and say I have uh, like this clever. But do you believe argument it? for why that is? It's just that I yeah because that I just don't I don't believe it. It is a matter of belief, I suppose, or conviction, inner conviction based on. You know, things read, things experienced, things seen. Again, we come back to the thin end of the wedge. I, I, um, I do trust experience, and I recognize that my experience can be wrong and very partial, but it's kind of all I've got. Yeah, I think we meet halfway there because um, we end up saying the same thing in the end. Uh, you're saying you don't like any positive twist one might give to what you just described as your innermost intuition which yes. is that metaphysical metaphysics is basically a chumps game that no one could ever win well yeah Mayasu is just giving you a reason to think that so you might reject his reason for thinking it you still think it so we still end up in the same position that the world is no, not the world is it's radical true. mystery I know it's funny. It's we had there is a very substantial pragmatic agreement between the two of us. But you need that ontological, <laughs> philosophical, logical sanction, and I run away from it because it feels like it would limit my freedom. Well, I think that in in not uh, paying it, and this is just I guess the an expression of the, the difference between us is that I find that if you ignore the ontological question, you're not actually freeing yourself. You're imprisoning yourself in your own experience. And yeah, that's probably and, true. And, and I think there's a little truth to both positions, which is why we make such a good duo, Phil. Um, yeah. But let's move on. Cause we're going to be talking about me with Joshua Ramey anyways. So, well, actually uh, this kind of worked out pretty well because yeah. we got a lot of, we got a lot of brush clearing. Right. Done. No. And I, 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 really... I will, I, I will say one thing, uh, one idea that occurred to me if uh, you and I were the the Beatles or like the Lennon McCartney songwriting duo uh -huh. I think you would be John Lennon and I would be Paul McCartney uh yeah I'd be the fanatic ideologue <laughs> <laughs> well 
well, that's not what I, I meant, would write. But... Imagine. No. Oh no! God, what a terrible thing to say about yourself, JF. I didn't realize you, the depths of your self-loathing went so far. <laughs> no, I, Imagine I... is such a bad song. Why do people think that song is good? It's not. It sucks. It's oh. so insipid. And the lyrics are so dumb, and everybody writes them in their high school yearbook, and they think it's profound. Oh, I'm just, come on, back me up on this, JF. I, I can't, well, Imagine I fucking sucks. I feel like if I agree with you, we'll lose even more listeners. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to... Uh, I'm, okay, so... And after all, you wrote that song, right. so... As the John Lennon. You have to, yeah, you get to yeah. be Paul McCartney, you get to be William James, I'm Henry James and John Lennon. No, right. I think I think I was I think that it's cool. It's well, come on, it's everybody knows it's way cooler to be John Lennon than to be Paul McCartney. Ah, uh, yeah, you're right. Um, no, it's true. But I, I I can come up with good melodies, and I got a pretty good voice. But uh, but you know my pink cherubic round little face <laughs> is just uh, just never gonna really be sexy, mysterious, cool. Right. You know, I'm never gonna be that guy. Right. Well, that's interesting because you know how these um, these dualities always come up in philosophy and art uh, everywhere, right? The Pepsi Coke dichotomy. So you've got Pla- <laughs> Plato and Aristotle. Okay, John. are you are you Pepsi or are you Coke? I'm French Canadian, so I'm Pepsi. <laughs> oh shit! I should have seen that coming. <laughs> and I like I like the bottle with the twirl. <laughs> this, um, in the '80s, uh, there was a um, massive ad campaign in Quebec for Pepsi and uh, they used this is this was this like advertising genius at the time they used a uh, famous Quebec comedian to star in these commercials his name was Denis Demers I think um and uh and in like the whole province just started like just converted to Pepsi. <laughs> you know? and, so that's where that like yeah. mild racial slur comes from. Right. That's where it comes from. Because um, like for those who are not Canadian uh, or for that matter, not Canadians of a certain generation, I wonder if, if the young people today even know what the fuck we're talking about. But like, uh, yeah, when I was growing up at any rate, calling a Quebecois Pepsi was sort of like a, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a slur. A racial slur. Yeah. And you know, um, I, it's funny. I recently, uh, for for the hell of it, I I did a, uh, a a privilege, a privilege test. I don't remember what it was called, but like a like a oh, test, wow. a t- like a questionnaire that tells you how privileged you are. Oh, cool! And so be- how privileged are you? Because I'm French Canadian, I was like super not privileged. I didn't have to say like oh. French Canadian. I just said, "Are you part of a? Are you part of a minority?" I'm like, "Yeah, I'm I, I'm, a, I'm a French Canadian who's always lived in Ontario, so I've." And then, and at the end, it was like, "Oh, you must have suffered suffered a lot." <laughs> the, the result at the end was that I, I'm uh, very oppressed, despite the fact that I'm a privileged white man. Yeah. Um, well, I'm I'm just privileged as fuck. Like, I'm not oh, even yeah. gonna do that quiz because I know it's just gonna be like the automatic thing where you get to the end, you click the button, and it, you get a message. Right. Uh, yeah, it's just like, must be nice, you entitled prick. And then it's just going to be like a, a primitive 90s old school gif of a middle finger slowly <laughs> rotating. <laughs> but um, the, uh, the, no, the, to get back to what I was saying, these these dualities. Yeah, this, these, the duality, the, yeah. The, the cosmic Coke, Pepsi, John Lennon, Paul McCartney duality. Right. Like, are you Plato or Aristotle? Are you uh, St. Augustine or Thomas Aquinas? Are you, uh, you know... Um, 
I, John or Paul, you know, uh, yeah. Elvis or the Beatles. And it's always the same. Uh, there's a kind of Hegelian thing going on there where these different, uh, these different entities occupy a similar space. One space is more like the thin end of the wedge and one is more the thick end of the wedge, as we would call it. So, like, why am I John? You know, that's an, in, that's yeah. an interesting way to characterize it because it certainly works with John and Paul. Paul's totally a thin end of the wedge guy. Yeah, he's totally about, oh, well, um, what's Eleanor Rigby's story, you know? Uh, what's, um, I'm trying to think of other Paul songs now. Well, Penny, what's going on on Penny Lane? Whereas, you know, Strawberry Fields is about what's actually the nature of reality, you know, yeah, <laughs> or across the true. universe or imagine. I mean, John's always trying to get to some truth, some big truth, whereas Paul is just telling stories. Yeah, and um, that's true. Actually, that's a really good way of putting it. Right. Okay. Okay, let's try this. Protestantism and Catholicism. Does the thick end, thin end distinction work there? Absolutely. Protestantism for me is total thin edge. Um, huh. In the sense that Martin Luther, basically what he got out of was any pretense that the church had any institutional access to ultimate reality. I mean, one could argue it that way. Um where in the church and Catholicism is about, um, well, I mean, just the, the just the the longevity of scholastic metaf metaphysics in the church. I mean, Thomas Aquinas remains valid as a kind of like avenue of theological speculation today in the Catholic Church, um, because the church believes the Catholic Church believes that human reason can get to divine truth, and. You know, sola scriptura and by grace alone and all these fundamental precepts of Protestantism are basically just saying all you've got is your own experience and your own faith. So, I mean, that's caricaturesque, but and there are many, many variants of Protestantism. But I would send I would say that, you know, if I had to make a call, I'd say Protestantism is thin edge. Catholicism is thick edge. Oh, man, I wanted to be on team Catholicism. Well, you can be. I'll send you a pamphlet. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is something we haven't talked about. The fact that our, because you've, you've basically outed yourself as a Buddhist and yeah. um, I haven't really outed myself as a Catholic because I don't, you know, but, but you've, you've nuanced your own Buddhism so much that I'd have to do the same with my Catholicism. There came a point yeah. in my life where I just kind of accepted that I was a Roman Catholic and actually dig it quite a bit. I, I like, uh, I like I like it from an aesthetic point of view. Um, well, that's yeah, an overwhelmingly huge aspect of Catholicism from my outsider perspective. Right, is just the sheer deliciousness. Yeah. Of uh, well, like you know, we were in, you know my family. We took a trip to Montreal last summer, and you know the the Jean Baptiste Basilica that all the tourists go to. Yeah. You know, it's just like it's like being inside of a wedding cake. Holy shit. Yeah. It's just like that kind of um just everything is just loaded with mystery and every square inch of and I'm not just talking about the basilica, I'm talking about like Catholicism in general as from an outsider perspective. Everything is opulent and everything is just sort of gleaming with iridescent colors and interesting figures and you know, if there's this profoundly aesthetic side to Catholicism uh, that makes it, for one thing, totally unsurprising that so many of the decadents 
converted to Catholicism late in life, or not even co- converted in the case of Arthur Machen, was a lifelong Anglo-Catholic. Right. Um, I know that some people listening to this will be like, what the fuck? JF's a Catholic? No, there's no way. Like, people really hate, <laughs> people really hate the Catholic Church. With good reason, I think. I mean, there's been some major, major um, fuck-ups, scandals, um, a lot of corruption. Uh, yeah, I, I'm just going to say this. Um, for me, the Catholic religion is a work of art, no more, no less. And so is every other religion. And I like Catholicism in the same sense that I like the film Stalker or the, or, uh, the film uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey or Moby Dick. I love these works of art and I love the Catholic religion with all its craziness and, and madness. Um, you know what it is? Catholicism is a zone. It's a zone. It's a zone, and and I like it in the Call same way. Call back to our stalker episode. And Catholics might say, "Well, that's ridiculous. You're just basically reducing your religion to a work of art." And I'm I don't see that as reducing it, and or belittling it at all. I see it as honoring it for what it is. Um, hmm. If you took all the aesthetics out of a religion, you'd be left with nothing. You'd just be left with a dictatorship, a kind of ideology. You'd be left. You'd be left with Calvinism. Oh <laughs> shit! <laughs> sorry, Careful. sorry to our Cal, our, our Calvinist listener. Yeah, sorry. Like we have, there's one Calvinist out there who's listening to this who's just like already writing an angry note on the admin at weirdstudies.com. My brother-in-law's a Calvinist, a Presbyterian, and um, I feel we should apologize to him. Although he's also a professional philosopher, so I doubt he's going to be listening to Weird Studies. <laughs> Um, just <laughs> out of sheer frustration. Um, but, uh, yeah, so and I don't think that's belittling it because I think art is our one way of accessing what we cannot conceptually communicate and must yep. communicate. So we need to use art to do that. And a religion is a, a big collective art project. And that's not saying it's. Yeah, I mean, bad. I feel that's how. I mean, that's how I feel. That's how I feel about Zen Buddhism as well. Right. You know, I'm a, I'm a, peculiar sort of Zen Buddhist, <laughs> the kind of Zen Buddhist who, you know, like never goes to temple and never meditates anymore. I mean, I think it's legit. I think a lot of religious people would find that pretty, uh, either incomprehensible or, or tasteless or tacky remark. But I, uh, I actually think that uh, honoring. Um, honoring the beauty that is in religion and not just the beauty of any particular thing like this particular building or that particular ritual, but, you know, you know, treating the whole thing lock, stock and barrel as, uh, as an artwork, as, as you put it, a collective artwork. I think that was a beautiful way of reframing religions. Right. There, there, uh, Deleuze said something that you'll agree with. Um, he says this, uh, he says, when you, when you're presented with an idea, um, I think I've mentioned this before, uh, the question you should be asking yourself is never whether it's true. I mean, something could be true and be totally useless yeah. and banal. Something could be true and be wrong in another way. Um, what's important when you're presented with an idea is whether it's, and he, he lists these off. He says whether it's important, whether it's interesting, and whether it's beautiful. And um, I think that's a pretty good um, way criterion for evaluating ideas insofar as your own life is concerned yeah Um, yeah but at the same time you can imagine someone getting indoctrinated into like some fundamentalist religion and going wow it's it's 
I don't know if it's true, but it's certainly important and beautiful and interesting. And then yeah. um, having their minds taken over by some uh, some crazy guru. So although although I would say, if, okay, let's just say that you send me a pamphlet, uh, and uh, and I decide I'm on the basis of the pamphlet you send me, I'm going to become a Catholic. Um, if I enter into that experience in with the spirit of like, I'm going to vibe on it for being important and for being beautiful. And what was the third one? Interesting. And interesting. And it certainly is interesting. But I'm not going to vibe with it because it's true. I'm going to just, I'm not going to say it's untrue. I'm not going to say it's true. I'm just going to bracket that question, leave it off to one side. I'll act as if it's true, but I'm not in my innermost heart, you know, affirming that. And actually, you don't have to. Uh, and a lot of people, I think, find this hard to understand. But that's actually one of the core competencies of being a magician is being able to hold things lightly, um, being able to vibe with them without biting down on some kind of hard belief. Uh I think if you went into a religious experience, you wanted to explore a new religion um, or any other kind of, you know, all-encompassing worldview, uh, like maybe I want to become a revolutionary Marxist or whatever. I don't. But, but you know, it seems to me you're not going to come to too much harm if you go into that experience vibing on the interesting, the, the interesting, the important, and the beautiful uh, and leaving off the true. I mean, you're not going to be drinking poison out of a Dixie cup unless you believe that it is the truth. Right. No, that's a great that point. Ne- that, that you need to do that. That's an absolutely good point. How how typical of us is it that we agreed that we were going to record a short show, that if we had, we're going to talk about anything, it was just going to be kind of reminiscing about the first episodes and talking about our future plans, and then we'd call it a day. Uh, how how typical is it of us that that was the plan and we have done absolutely none of that and embarked on this like enormous, uh, ambitious conversation? Right. I think I saw it coming a little bit, but I, there's a couple of things we need to mention. Um, okay, so recently a Twitter follower and followee, uh, Betty Paz, a, an artist. She's a Jungian artist. She she designs or paints mandalas and. Um, she offered to make uh, a Mandela portrait of me based on, you know, what she'd heard on the podcast. And she did a great job. And I just wanted to thank her for that because it's really cool. You can see it on my Twitter feed. Um, you can find Betty. Her name is Betty Paz. That's P-A-Z. Uh, she's on Twitter. And check out her work. It's awesome. And she can make a portrait, a Mandela portrait of you. And uh, <laughs> and she has a website. She's fantastic. She's a s- super smart, um, awesome person. And so I really recommend that you check out her work. And I want to thank her again for doing that because that was, yeah, it was big. And it's and it's and and it's dope. I'm, I I confess I was envious. Uh, but yes, to to uh, to uh, reinforce what JF just said, you can you can uh, you can contact Betty yourself and uh, and talk to her about. Setting up a commission. Um, in Jungian psychology, in Jungian psychology, the mandala is always a symbol of the self. So the mandala is always giving you a kind of map of where you're at. When you draw your own mandala or if you're a particularly insightful um, person, you can 
you can draw a mandala for someone else, which is what Betty does. Um, there's an oracular quality to her work, which I found really cool. And we had a long conversation about the picture afterwards, and she had some incredible insights into my uh, my psyche, <laughs> which I found, uh, I, I felt I was in good hands, so I felt totally safe, but it was pretty uncanny at times what she was coming up with. It was almost like getting a, a reading from a really talented fortune teller, you know? The other thing I wanted to mention before I forget is uh, I wanted to... Um, mention infinite conversations uh which is the creation mm. of marco morelli and his group of thugs um <laughs> they infinite conversations is is connected to metapsychosis which is an online journal uh infinite conversations is a forum for discussing all kinds of ideas and they've been super awesome about weird studies i've been on the forum talking with these guys um they're they're full of insights and uh I really recommend checking out um, that community. It's a really cool intellectual community. It's amazing to me, actually, how high level the discussion is. I guess right. I'm, what I'm used what I'm used to is uh, like boxing and mixed martial arts online forums. It's a different tone. Yeah, I'll, I'll just say that it's it's a pretty different scene. Uh, metapsychosis itself is kind of beautiful. It's a wonderful thing that exists. Like it wants to carve out the same kind of space that I feel like we want to carve out, which is like an an intellectual space for talking about stuff that almost never normally makes it into intellectual discourse. Right. Absolutely. The uh, weird shit. And, and and there are lots of other um, allies, listeners, friends that. I just want to mention uh, Kike, yeah. Kike Autry. He's uh, in Texas. He's just, he's uh, studying psychology. He's just, we've been texting back and forth. He's just a really insightful dude, and I really appreciate the correspondence. Uh, Jeremy Johnson, uh, Michael Garfield, who will be on the show soon. Um, and it goes on. I mean, I'm going to forget people now. Um, God, now, now I, I've, I'm doing the thing with the Oscars where you, you're like, oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, Stephen Trothan, uh, Rob White, uh, guys who have emailed us a few times have written interesting stuff. We read some of their emails on the on the show. My buddy Tim Dunn, uh, who supplied the translation of uh, Arsenis Tarkovsky's poem in Stalker. Right. Uh, various friends of mine who get in touch to tell me that they dig it. Various friends of JF's that tell, tell them that they dig it. Uh, my mom... Uh, my mom and her husband, Larry, are the biggest frickin' super fans of this show. Holy smoke. Um, so th uh, thanks, Mom. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and I, I mean, like, you know, we really, we uh, we love our fans. That's right. what we're trying to say. Yeah. Uh, we've, we uh, really have been thriving from just, you know, hearing from people and hearing their ideas. People come up with interesting stuff that neither JF nor I would ever have thought of. So right. I guess... Uh, if you want to, if you feel like it, perhaps you might think about dropping us a note. Send us a letter. You can email us at admin at weirdstudies.com. You can email me. My university account is fordp at indiana.edu. And JF is jfmartell at reclaimingart.com. You can, I don't know, you can do all kinds of stuff. You can, uh, you can send me a postcard to uh to indiana university i will get it i love postcards 
<laughs> Maybe we should do a show on postcards. I realize that doesn't sound promising, but I've got some uh, uh, appropriately weird insights about postcards. It has a precedent. But, you sent me one once that was pretty awesome. Yeah. No, um, I love postcards. So, uh, so anyway, yeah. get in. So get so get in touch, assholes. Yeah, for sure. And thanks for listening. It's been it's been a good run, and we're really happy. It's been a really good. It's been a great spring semester. It's been a really great beginning for the show. And here's to the next season, and the one after that, and the one after that. Excellent. subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also find us on Twitter. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.